we are now saints. We are now in Christ. And that means I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't belong to this world. I don't belong to any tribe. No, I am called into a new identity with a new people. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Romans chapter 1. Uh, I don't know about you, but this is uh, going to be an exciting time. And one person has said, <clears throat> in fact, Samuel Taylor Coleridge called Romans the most profound work in existence. So we have our work cut out for us uh, as we begin this exposition. Uh, this letter, as we looked last week, uh, is a letter from Paul to uh, the church in Rome. And we begin in Romans chapter 1 with a greeting from the one who dictated these words to his scribe Tertius. And we get a little bit of a glimpse of what is to come in the pages ahead just from these opening few verses. Now, we mentioned last week that the book of Romans is a first century fundraising letter that was written to explain the gospel that had yet to reach into the extended mission field of Europe and beyond. If we were to pray, as we did this morning, for the church to extend into Indonesia, and we were to go be a part of a really solid church near that community, outside of that uh, specific people group, and there was an established, strong church there, and we were to say, okay, now we want to take the gospel into this people group, uh, we would say this is the gospel we're preaching. And that's very similar to what Paul does in his desire to reach people in Spain. He writes this letter to explain the gospel to the church in Rome. Now, according to church history, Paul's letter here to the Romans was prized by the Christians there in Rome. In fact, Clement of Rome's letter in the year 96 shows that he had great familiarity with Paul's letter. And some believe that Clement memorized the entire book of Romans and that every time the church gathered together on the Lord's Day, that they would read from a portion of the book of Romans. We do know that within a few years, this epistle was widely circulated and distributed among the early churches as a powerful summary, as it is, of apostolic doctrine, and it has impacted the world ever since. But from what we know... Paul had never visited this church before writing this letter to them. So before he begins to explain the gospel, which we'll get into next week and kind of rock the Roman world, he first needs to introduce himself. And so today we're going to see Paul introduce himself, introduce Jesus, who is the theme of the gospel of God. It is the person and work of Christ. And we're going to see then who we are. And so if you're taking notes, that really is our template today for this text. We teach verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, we began this series last week, and as you know, we'll be in this for about 50 Sundays through the book of Romans. I encourage you to read ahead every week to uh, anticipate the study on Sunday. But today, as we look at verses 1 through 7, we're going to answer, who is Paul in verses 1 and 5? Who is Jesus in verses 2 through 4? And then who are we in verses 5 through 7? So let's get into it. Look at the first verse of Romans chapter 1. Let's answer that first question, who is Paul? And notice he's going to answer with three statements. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
Now, there often in book studies is a big kind of authorship debate about who is writing what letter or what book of the Bible that we are approaching. But it happens that there's really no scholarly debate over who the author of Romans is. It is clearly Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul the Apostle. And so we learn three things about Paul from this opening address. Did you notice that he describes himself, first of all, not the way you would expect him to, which is as an apostle. He does get to that. But Paul first says that I am identifying myself first as a servant of Christ Jesus. I think that's significant. Another way of translating this word servant is the word slave, or the Greek is the word doulos, a doulos or the doulos of Jesus Christ. Now, John Stott clarifies this word because sometimes we hear slave or servant and we kind of misunderstand it. But here's what John Stott says. He says, in the Old Testament, there was an honorable secession of individual Israelites, beginning with Moses and Joshua, who called themselves Yahweh's servants or slaves, while Yahweh also designated Israel collectively as the body of Israelites, my servant. In the New Testament, however, it is remarkable how easily the title Lord has been transferred from Yahweh to Jesus, while the Lord's servants are no longer Israel, but all his people, irrespective of whether they are Jews or Gentiles. So this title, doulos, servant, it describes not only Paul's relationship to Jesus, Jesus is his Lord, it also demonstrates his position as someone who's greatly favored and who is in service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Paul says at the beginning, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. But secondly, notice that he says, I am called to be an apostle. Now there's this kind of a symmetrical verse with this. Look at verse five. Just let your eyes glance to verse five. And by the way, as a pastor, I have to continually say that. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. Get your eyes on the text, okay? So here's what the text says in verse five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations. There's that word apostleship. Now, Paul is saying in verse five, I didn't make myself an apostle. I wasn't just thinking this would be a nice thing to do. Let me just create a business card and hey, I'm Paul the apostle. I'm making myself this person. It says that he received both grace and gift, meaning mercy as well as mission. And thus, when he was given this apostleship, this position, He now had authority to see Gentiles one to the obedience of faith. And Paul says back up in verse 1, I'm called to be an apostle. What is an apostle? Well, the Greek word is apostolos, and we can translate it a couple different ways. On the screen, we can delegate it or translate it as a delegate. We can translate it as a messenger, or we can translate it as one who's sent out with orders. So we can look at it two different ways. First of all, if we use a little a, a lowercase a, that would be you and I. You and I are sent ones. We are little a apostles. We as saints, as Christians, are sent out by Jesus to do the work of ministry. Jesus, remember, said in John chapter 20, verse 21, to his disciples and thus to us, as the Father has sent me, even so I am apostolos, I'm sending you. So the word sent here is where we get this word apostle from. So you and I, let's not say this at the next greeting, like, hey, Apostle Bob, good to see you. Let's not, let's not use that term necessarily, but in the verb sense, we are uh, sent ones. We are sent by Jesus. Let that resonate with you. You 
and me, we are sent by Jesus to declare the gospel to an unbelieving world. So remember that tomorrow when you're on your way to the marketplace of our community. We are sent by Jesus, little a, apostles. Well, then there's the capital A, and the capital A, of course, is the formal title. This is more the noun, a, a apostle. And we would call this the office of apostle. And of course, this office is reserved for those who were called to lay the foundation of the church. So a verse I'd love for you to jot down later is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. There, Paul explains to the church in Ephesus that the church was founded on the apostles and prophets. When uh, the apostles were attempting to replace Judas as one of them, remember Judas, of course, he betrayed Jesus, he committed suicide, and he was, according to the sovereignty of God from creation past, he was the son of perdition. And so Judas was not a believer, he was not saved, and thus he was not ultimately one of the true apostles. And so Peter says that to replace his role, someone who was going to be apostle needed to have been with Jesus as an eyewitness of his, not only his teachings, his healings, his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And this apostle would have the authority to proclaim the gospel and to establish the church. And not only that, not every apostle did this, but they collectively had the authority to author scripture and the Holy Spirit would authenticate and validate their authority with signs, wonders, and persecution. Now, someone might be here today like, well, time out, pastor. Then Paul, according to that definition, is not qualified. So let's just forget the book of Romans. Let's just read the book of Mark. Well, Mark wasn't with Jesus either. So, oh boy, now what? Well, I would say, hold on. Uh, Paul did see the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And not only did Jesus commission Paul personally, but Paul in Galatians chapter two, uh, we learned that as he recounts this, Jesus's apostles with a capital A, actually bore witness to Paul's own apostolic ministry, specifically to the Gentiles. And it says that they didn't say, yeah, Paul, we're giving you the X. They said, no, we approve and we validate your ministry. And Paul's ministry was not to a particular church body as a pastor. His ministry was a broader ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And his own ministry was, of course, confirmed with signs and wonders and persecution and abundant fruit. And so Paul had seen the risen Lord. And as he says about himself, he was an apostle born out of time. He was like born a generation late. And today, for that reason, we do not have big A apostles anymore. So if you want to print up business cards and fly the private jet and use that term, uh, we would say, hold on, the scripture, the canon of scripture is complete and the church has been founded. And so we would discourage you, please don't call me apostle pilgrim, okay? Uh, but we are all sent ones in the broader sense of the term. So Paul uses the title servant, and that shows his humility. He uses the title apostle, and that shows his authority. But notice thirdly, that Paul says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And, and I believe this shows his responsibility. You see, this is fascinating to me. This is what most scholars believe is a play on words when he says, I'm set apart. Would you circle that word or highlight that word? set, or those two words, uh, set apart. See, before Paul was made alive by the Spirit of God upon meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul used to be identified as a Pharisee. And the word Pharisee means set apart or separated. But the idea is that they're separated from Gentiles or from sinners. Remember, the Pharisees were 
the conservative Jews, they held to a very strict interpretation of the Torah. They meticulously observed Mosaic law, but specifically, the, the, not the weightier aspects of justice and righteousness, but they really focused on the Sabbath regulations, on tithing, and on the purification rituals. I've done that in a previous sermon, just talking through all of the ways they would do their hand washing, just meticulously followed that, straining out the gnat and then swallowing the camel of injustice. So ultimately, Pharisees, for that reason, were separated from Gentiles. They were separated from sinners. They were separated from anyone who could be considered ceremonially unclean. They were guys you didn't invite over to parties, typically. And so they were uh, seeking to put an end to this group known as the way. Remember, Paul was wanting to snuff out followers of Christianity. And he wanted to, through intimidation and persecution, put an end to it. And on his way to do that, he meets Jesus... And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, remember, uh, it tells us in Acts that Saul's identity was completely changed. He was no longer Paul or Saul the Pharisee. He was now Paul the Christian. And his heart was transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. When he repented of his sin, he trusted Christ as his Lord. So he may be using a play on words here when he says set apart for the gospel of God. He may be saying, I used to be, a Pharisee separated from sinners, but now I'm an apostle, I'm separated for sinners. I'm now separated from this world and for the gospel. The general idea is that Paul is saying, my life now is consecrated. It's been set aside for this task, and it's for the task of proclaiming the good news. So Paul, with humility, with authority, and with responsibility, says, I'm writing this letter to represent the gospel to you in Rome and also to where you're hopefully going to financially support me and send me, which is to Spain. Well, let's move to our second question. That's who the writer is, who Paul is. But let's look at who Jesus is because we've said this, that the book of Romans is about the gospel of God and the gospel of God, of course, is the personal work of Christ. And so we're going to see four answers to who is Jesus from our text. So if you're taking note, I hope you are. Look with me. First of all, who is Jesus? Verse 2 tells us that he is promised in the Old Testament. Notice verse 2. It says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The question is when? When did God promise the good news and to whom did he promise it? Well, I said this to the early service. We, We really should and could take the time to dedicate an entire sermon series to this idea of Christ revealed in the Old Testament, Christ uh, in the prophets, if you would. In fact, one of my classes in Bible college was Christ in the prophets, and it was a three-credit hour class. And we barely scratched even the the tip of the iceberg, the surface of um, how deep uh, and abiding this idea, this thread that uh, runs through the Old Testament. But for the purposes of time, we're uh, only going to look at 300 this morning. Uh, as we No, we'll just look at three. Just three. <laughs> Someone's like, ah, this is my first Sunday here. We're going to definitely miss the game tonight. All right, well, uh, let's look at three. Three of these promises. First, in Genesis chapter 3, the gospel was promised to Satan. Notice in Genesis 3, 15 on the screen, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he, his, her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God promises that a descendant from the line of Eve will be this, what I call the serpent crusher, 
even as he is struck by Satan. Of course, that is at the cross. And so God promises from the very beginning, uh, the proto-evangelium, uh, the, the, the gospel beforehand, he promises this will happen. Well, there's a second time. There's many more than this, but a second time, uh, not in the garden, but in the wilderness, God makes a promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 17. I'll just read verse seven where he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, according to Galatians 3, 15 through 18, the offspring of Abraham is not offsprings, plural, but singular, referring to Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus, through his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, has fulfilled this covenant of grace, has brought us near to the Father, and has redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so he promises this to the founder, if you would, the, the, uh, the patriarch, the ancestor of all of Israel. Well, the promise was made a third time in Psalm chapter 2. And this time, who's making the promise and to whom? Well, notice with me on the screen. David says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So notice who is promising whom here. Well, it's God the Father, not necessarily promising David, but he's making a promise to his seed, that's the Messiah, the son, the serpent crusher, who's the son of God. And the son is the one in whom all the covenantal promises are found. Now, if you read Psalm 2 and you get a little bit mixed up, Hebrews 1 explains that the son who's begotten is Jesus Christ. The gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets. And when you hear through the prophets, that's not just Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah. That's also Moses and David and Samuel. Jesus Christ was foretold in the Old Testament. This is not something Paul kind of made up on the fly. Jesus wasn't kind of flying by the seat of his pants. Hey, maybe I should fulfill this prophecy. This was foretold before Jesus even walked the earth. So when Paul would reason with the Jews in the synagogue, he would do so from the Hebrew scriptures to show Jesus is the promised Messiah. In Acts chapter 17, he explains, or it explains that was his custom. He would go there on the synagogue. He would explain with textual evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again. And this is the Jesus whom the Jews crucified. So the first thing right out of the gate in the book of Romans that we learn about Jesus is that he is promised beforehand throughout the Old Testament. But secondly, if you're taking note, He's also a descendant of King David. And that's important. Look at verse 3. It says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Why is that important? Well, 2 Samuel 7 tells us that the Messiah was promised to come through David's actual lineage, through his physical bloodline, that there would be one who would sit on his throne perpetually forever. And that we should be able to trace then his lineage all the way back to being a descendant of Abraham. Now, I know some of you guys are getting really excited about your own ancestry. So you've gone on ancestry.com and you're just curious, like, is there someone in our family that's like famous? Is there someone who's important? And it gets a bit awkward as you begin to like unpack your ancestry. You realize like the person you thought would be famous was actually someone who like killed a bunch of people in the Wild West. And you're like, oh, okay, uh, never mind. We're, we're French uh, and we don't need to go any deeper. 
Um, thankfully, we don't have to search hard to find the lineage of Jesus. We know when Israel was sacked and carried away captive to Babylon, uh, many of those genealogical records, specifically in the northern tribes conquered by Assyria, were kind of wiped out. And yet we can have confidence at the lineage of Jesus when we look at Matthew and Luke. Look on the screen real quick. Matthew gives us in chapter 1 the line of Jesus. And notice that it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that doesn't mean he's literally the child of. It means he's the descendant of. Like David wasn't the son actually of Abraham. He was the descendant of Abraham. So what Matthew's doing here is and when he goes to verse two, he begins with Abraham and then works his way to David and then works his way till chapter one, verse 16 to Jesus Christ. So he traces Abraham to David to Jesus. Now Luke does it backwards. Look on the screen at Luke 3, 23. Here's what Luke does. Luke begins with Jesus and then he goes back to David, and then he goes back to Abraham. In fact, Luke is an accountant, so he goes all the way back to Adam. He just continues all the way back to Adam and Eve. And Luke's genealogy is a little bit different uh, because I believe Luke is tracing Mary's lineage, meaning Jesus' human lineage, whereas Matthew is following Joseph's line, which is Jesus' legal lineage by adoption. However, as Luke is laying it out, he had to follow the proper form, which is not to include women, but to include men. So he mentions Joseph, but this is actually Mary's lineage. So he says in 3.23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, I love this, as was supposed, of Joseph. Jesus is the descendant or the son of David. And that's important. Jesus had a human lineage through the line of David. This is what we call the incarnation. Jesus, sometimes we misunderstand, like he wasn't this forced ghost who kind of projected to help Ray fight the Sith. That's not the idea that Jesus kind of was this force ghost that kind of floated along to kind of appear and give good teaching and then let me just wipe their sins away. No, he came in the flesh. He was born into a family, born into a line of people that could trace back to David, trace back even to Eve. Uh, here's what Barclay says. Barclay says, uh, the second half of this, he says, Paul preached of someone who is not a legendary figure in an imaginary story, not a demigod, half god, or half man. He preached about one who was really and truly one with those whom he came to save. So Jesus is the son of David, according to the flesh. But number three, I want you to jot this down. He's also, spiritually you could say, the son of God. Now notice verse four. The third thing I want you to jot down is God's son. Verse four says, and Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. All right, don't go heretical here. Pay attention. This does not mean, verse four does not say Jesus became the son of God, did it? That's not what the text says. What does the verse say? What is the word? Jesus was what to be the son of God? Don't be nervous. What is it? He was declared to be the son of God. Uh, now, that word declared is where we get the word, our word horizon from. So when, when you and I look out on a boat at the horizon or when we're getting dizzy and we need to focus on the horizon, the, word, the, the actual horizon defines and demonstrates the farthest possible visible point on earth. So in a sense, because of the resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus is now recognized as the determined definition of who God's son truly is. He didn't become God's son because he rose again, but at that point he defined who God's son is. He's resurrected in power. Here's what Barclay says again. He says, if Jesus had lived a lovely life and died a heroic death, and if that had been the end of him, he might've been numbered with the great and the heroic, but he would simply have been one among many. His uniqueness is guaranteed forever by the fact of the resurrection. The others are dead and gone and have left a memory. Jesus lives on and gives us a presence, still mighty with power. See, Martin Luther points out the text did not say Jesus was made the son of God or he became the son of God. No, he was declared the son of God according to the Holy Spirit's work in the resurrection. So track with me. We have an anticipated savior. We have an incarnate savior. We have a resurrected savior. And finally, according to Paul, number four, Jesus is our Christ and Lord. The text simply proclaims him as Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's not his last name. That's his title. He's the Messiah. But he's also Lord, which means he's the sovereign ruler over all. Some have suggested that these two titles, and I'm not really sure about this, that, that Christ and Lord appealed to two different types of Christians, that Christ would appeal to the Jew or the Jewish Christian, whereas the title Lord would appeal to Gentile Christians. And that, that may be possible, but the bigger picture here is that Jesus is both the Savior and the Supreme Sovereign, not only of the church, but over all creation. Jesus Christ is our Lord, but Jesus Christ is the Lord. It doesn't matter who is president. Jesus Christ is sovereign and supreme over that president. It doesn't matter who is our governor. Jesus Christ is supreme and sovereign over whoever that is. Uh, if you are a husband in a marriage and you are lording over with sinful authority and you're suppressing or oppressing your wife, then you're misrepresenting the true authority if you're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ as a husband. But I'm the man. Well, listen, you're a man under authority. And so you are to submit your authority under the greater authority in humility, and that is Jesus Christ. Do you guys know at Jesus' name, the Bible explains that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that there is no greater authority, there's no authority more glorious or holy or true or righteous. This Lord, Jesus, is both gentle and just. He's both holy and humble. He's both gracious and good. And he's distinct from anything in all creation. And yet, he's loyally steadfast in his love and truth. And he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The question is, though he is Christ the Lord, is he your Lord? Have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ? Have you uh, turn from your sin, repented of it, um, set it aside. So I don't want to live that way any longer. I want to, I want to call it what it is, what the Bible calls it. It is rebellion. I want to reject that. And I want to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. If you do, he's now Lord of your life. And so that leaves us with a nagging third question this morning. If we know who Paul is, we know who Jesus is. The third question is, well, then who, who are we? And I want us to answer that from the text. We're not going to listen to pop psychology, what the world says, what Taylor Swift says. Who are we according to the scriptures? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, through whom? Through who? Christ. Through Jesus. Very good. You guys know this from Sunday school. The, Jesus is the right answer in every Sunday school question. You guys, 
guys know this. Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. We unpacked that verse a little bit last week. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, according to these verses, you and I are four things. So I'd love for you to jot these down. We can deduce that we are, first of all, called. Verse 6 tells us we are called, what? To belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7 tells us we are called to be saints. And these are really two ways of saying the same thing. He's saying this to the same group. Those who are called by God are saints, and the saints are the called. Uh, Those in Rome are known as the called in verse 7, because they've received the effectual and salvific calling of God. To put it more simply, the called saints of God are God's love, God's elect, and God's covenantal people. Uh, Literally, in the Greek, Paul says, you are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, later in chapter 8, I love that that we've we've kind of been really referencing chapter 8 today in uh, our call to worship and in our time of singing. But notice in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I remember teaching my kids that when they were like five years old, memorize that verse. But he goes on and says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And notice this, this golden chain of redemption. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you and I, who are we? We are called. We are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're called to be saints. Glorious good news. Well, secondly, we are number two, loved by God. We just sang this. We're loved by God. Look at verse seven. Paul says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Doesn't he love everybody in Rome? I mean, he loves everybody in Rome. Well, yes, of course, but beyond his love for the world, God has a special love for his chosen bride. I am, as a man, a Christian man, I am commanded to love every Christian woman as my sister in Christ. But I, of course, have a unique and greater love for just one particular sister. Uh, That is, of course, my wife, Jen. So, God in his love, to all those who are loved by God, there's a greater love, but then there's a a particular love. Uh, now, did you see the order of verse 7? Maybe you missed it. Look at verse 7 again. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So notice that God doesn't first call you a saint and then, hey, because you're a saint, then I love you. No, he loves you and therefore you're chosen. It also does not say, well, those who chose God are loved by God. So if you chose God, then, you're, then God's going to love you. No, it says we're loved by God and we're chosen. We're called. You and I are not saved by our own merit or because of anything that we've done, but because we're loved by God, meaning we are chosen by God in eternity past according to his own purposes. The hymn says it well. We love singing this. All the redeemed washed by his blood come and rejoice in what? In his great love. Oh, praise him, hallelujah. I'd really love for that great biblical truth to warm your heart and your spirit this morning as a sinner. Let me just... Minister to your heart a little bit with this truth. You may have misunderstand love, misunderstood love because of a love that was an earthly love uh, that failed you. 
And I want you to know today that the love of God is something that no earthly love can rival or be compared with. You may not, not have been loved by your wife, but you're loved, you're beloved of the Father. You may not currently be loved by your children, but you are loved by your God. You may not have felt the love of an earthly father, but your heavenly father loves you with an everlasting love. Your salvation this morning is not based on anything particularly special or sensational about you, but it's based completely on his love and on his grace. I love this, uh, this graphic. Maybe this graphic com- like captures what I'm trying to say. How I was saved. Red by the grace of God. White by the grace of God in white. <laughs> I was saved solely by an act of his love. You and I are loved by God. Isn't that wonderful? But there's a third aspect of this. Look at the second half of verse seven. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we learn that we are children. Number three, we are children. We're missing a word there. Children of the Father. We are children of the Father. Paul says, grace to you and peace. This is, of course, a standard greeting. It's also a throwback to the priestly blessing of Aaron. In number six, we close many of our services here where we say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance or his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's from Numbers chapter six. So he's saying grace to you and peace. One person said grace is the cause and peace is the effect. But where does this grace and peace come to us from? Where? Notice where it comes from. It comes to us from God, our Father. You and I have been adopted like foster kids with no home. We've been adopted from a difficult, more than difficult, from a place of wrath, children of wrath, those who were dead, and we have been adopted because of the love and grace of God into his family. And now we don't just experience peace with God, but the very peace of God himself. And he is our father. We as children are children of the father. Well, finally, number four, who are we? We are servants of Christ the Lord. Notice that the grace and peace comes to us from God our father and Jesus Christ the Lord. So Paul might be a servant. He might be a doulos of Christ his Lord, but we also are those who affirm with Paul, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's our Lord. So we, who are we? We are servants, we're children, we're beloved, and we belong to him. So I guess a better way of saying who are we is whose are we? We are those who belong to Jesus Christ. And thus, Paul begins his wonderful letter to the beloved believers in Rome. And next week, what we'll do is we'll actually begin to look at Paul's intention for coming there. And he begins to, in chapters, uh, or verses 16 and 17, we call this the 116, right? The very, the very kind of summary, the key aspect of the whole book of Romans we'll dive into next week. Before we uh, partake in a time of communion this morning, I want us to apply this with three gospel points, three gospel applications. So if you're taking note, I think we can apply this text in three ways. So number one, we now belong. We just said that. But we belong not to ourselves, not to this world, but you and I belong to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Ever since you and I were in middle school, we began, maybe even earlier than that, we, we began or we've been trying to figure out who am I and where do I belong? What is my identity? 
And so we've asked these questions, usually around middle school, we've been asking these questions to determine who am I? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? We ask questions like, am I smart? Do I hang out with the smart kids or am I stupid? Am I rich? Am I poor? Am I athletic or am I an indoor guy? Am I cool or do I dress up and go to Comic-Con? I'm just kidding. If you guys dress up and do that, you're cool. You're totally cool. I have friends here that do that, so I'm just messing with you. You're cool. But where do I fit in? Where do I belong? And yet, now in Christ, we belong to a new people. And so for the Romans, you know, you might say, what was the best potluck, church potluck in history? It would definitely have been at the Church of Rome. They're all Italian. (laughs) This has been the best potluck ever. They weren't identified. He didn't say, I'm writing to you who are Italian. No, he says, I'm writing to those who are in, who are in Christ. So listen, church, we are now a part of a new people. So the racial, socioeconomic, man-centered tribes with which we seek to root our identity in, they're now erased and we are one body. We are now the saints of Jesus Christ. You guys know this. We've said this before. The word saints is never used in the New Testament to describe one individual. Saints is never singular, it's always plural. So a saint is not a super Christian who's done some miraculous thing or who's holier than the average shoreliner. A saint means, uh, the saints plural, we are members of a visible local spiritual community. We've been called by God and we've been qualified to receive a glorious inheritance. So we are now saints, we are now in Christ. And that means I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't belong to this world. I don't belong to any tribe. No, I am called into a new identity with a new people. And so we are now in Christ. We belong. Secondly, though, if you're taking note, it is true that we're in Christ, but it's also true that we are in a local community. He says to the beloved believers, he writes to them in Rome. Don't let those two words escape you. We might be in Bradenton or in Sarasota or in Lakewood Ranch, or if you drove a little further, in Mayaka, but we are ultimately this morning in Christ. But listen to me, being in Christ doesn't for a minute mean that you're dislocated from being in a community. Does that make sense? We're still in this region, in this uh, area, and we don't want to be dislocated. You guys have heard of that medical condition, of course. A dislocation, a dislocated bone is when a shoulder or a finger or some other bone slips out of joint. Don't show your hand, but if that's happened to you, if you've dislocated a a bone, it's incredibly painful. And until it's put back into the right place, it's not as effective or useful as it was intended to be. So the guy with the dislocated shoulder is not the starting pitcher, no matter how much he says, put me in coach, I got this. But see, dislocation is different than dismemberment. Dismemberment's where a a joint or a bone is amputated off your body. That's different. Dislocation, it's still right there, but it's just slipped out of place a little bit. It's dislocated. And Paul was not intending for the people to whom he was writing, who were now in Christ, to somehow no longer be effective in Rome. They were still, they're not to be dislocated, or you could say quarantined. They were to be quarantined from the community, not in a medical way. Don't write me the email, please. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being set apart or not engaged in the lives of the people around him. I like what Stephen Cole says. He says, Rome was the capital of the huge empire that stretched from England to Persia. The Roman emperor was worshiped as a god. Rome was the center of commerce, wealth, power, and status. It represented all that is worldly at its apex. 
And that is where these saints lived and where they were to reach their fellow Gentiles. God calls us to live as saints in our city, holding fast to Jesus' name and holding forth the word of life. Our new standing with God as recipients of his grace and peace is the basis on which we take his good news to the evil city where we live and beyond to the nations. So you and I are in Christ, but we're also in community, in a community that needs to know, desperately know the gospel. And that brings us to our third point here. Number three, if you're taking note, we have a new identity, which means we also have a new imperative. You see, the road to Damascus for Paul was not only his conversion, but it was also his commissioning. And we too, as we began the service this morning, we too have been brought from death to life, from slave of sin to servant of Christ. We who were children of wrath are now beloved children of the Father. We who were deserving of eternal judgment are now classified as saints. We used to be separated from God because we were sinners. And now, just like Paul, we're separated to God to preach the gospel to sinners. And thus we, you and I, we have a new identity. We've been brought from one place to another, which means we now have a new responsibility. So we aren't to live for my kingdom come, but his kingdom come. I'm now separated to God to preach the gospel and to seek to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, we can't lean backwards this morning and say, well, that's the sole responsibility of the pastors to preach the gospel. No, it's all of our responsibility as Christians. It's not the sole responsibility of the overseas missionary to advance the gospel. It is all our responsibility. So conversion in your life also means commission. And I think it's important that our new identity brings a new imperative, and it's all for the sake of the gospel. So believer, your identity is completely changed. You are now a son, you're a saint, you're a servant, and that means you're set apart. So as we close our sermon this morning, live as a son, live as a saint, live as his servant, and live as one who has been set apart for the gospel, set apart from this world and to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are now new in Christ, that as we're about to sing, we are complete in thee. Uh, You have done the work from first to last, and we are so thankful. We're so grateful. We don't receive any of the credit. We don't boast in our accomplishments, but we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. So I am no longer uh, what I used to be. I'm now in him. So Lord, thank you for these truths. I know that we've uh, recounted much of this in the book of Colossians, but Lord, it never gets old to realize who we are and whose we are. We belong to you. So Lord, we were bought at a price. May we honor God, not only with our bodies, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but with the little bit of life you've given us left. Lord, as our lives depict that little dash between birth and death, may we spend it, not on ourselves, not amassing our seashell collection to show off but Lord that we would spend our lives that we would invest our lives for gospel impact because we know that will have eternal impact it'll outlive these temporal flashes that we call life so Lord we thank you that today we're complete in you we thank you for your grace and mercy that calls us son, daughter, saint used to be a sinner who's now set apart. Lord, thank you for those truths that we studied this morning. 
We're excited to study this book as it's changed many believers' lives throughout church history. May it have the same impact in our lives together corporately at Shoreline Church for your glory and our community's good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.